It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to be back and going after another adventure into history. I'm going to ramble a little bit here at first, which typically isn't my style, as I prefer to get down to business quickly. So humor me. First, a special thanks to all of you for putting us over the 5 million mark in unique listens in the past year, and to those of you who helped us support this show by listening, sharing, and supporting our sponsors as well as our loyal patrons at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. This great podcast adventure continues as my list of stories to research and do keeps getting larger. As all of you know, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries is my flagship podcast, and into it I pour a good deal of my time and love. The idea to do a story on Houdini came at me recently from a few different directions. First, I called my sister in Philadelphia the other day. For you Pennsylvania mainliners, she lives in Paoli, and she's big on Mad Anthony Wayne, one of Washington's most trusted generals. By the way, Lancaster Pike, which she lives on, also known as Route 30, could have served as the East Coast counterpart to the American graffiti cruising strip on the West Coast in the 50s and 60s. And if you haven't seen that iconic movie, give it a try. It's American Graffiti. The soundtrack alone is a piece of history all by itself. Just replace those California license plates for Pennsylvania plates and replace the palm trees with oaks and maples, the late 50s and early 60s cars, plus teens looking for fun, and a bunch of college kids from Haverford, Cabrini, Villanova, and Swarthmore, and you're in. But I digress. Why did I call my sister? One reason, because I wanted to ask her about the occasional visits we made in the company of our parents to Uncle Lou Harris up in Long Island, New York, just outside of New York City. If I remember correctly, he lived in Garden City. Uncle Lou had been an assistant to Houdini, which is all I ever knew, because I was only ten at the time, and I was interested more in the full drum set Uncle Lou kept in the lower-level playroom than in his life story. Oh, if I could have that time back now. My sister is seven years my senior, and although she has filled in a number of blanks for me regarding childhood events, she remembers nothing more than that one fact about Uncle Lou as well. I started to become curious about Houdini when my search for good stories at 1001 Stories for the Road led me to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's book on spiritualism, the belief that the dead can speak to the living, one path to that being through medium-guided seances. Houdini, who was a professional showman, disavowed any connections with the spirit world and was diametrically opposed to spiritualism, although he did become great friends, at least for a while, with Conan Doyle and his family and spent lots of beach time in Atlantic City, New Jersey, with them. Houdini wrote a book on the evils and trickery involved in seances, lectured, and became an in-person activist exposing seances and spiritualism, thereby putting an end to a number of careers of men and women who took money for the avowed purpose of connecting wealthy grieving widows with their lost loved ones. And during and after World War I, there were many lost loved ones to miss, and that's when spiritualism, which had been around already for 60 or 70 years, really took its roots. There are many stories out there about Houdini, his career and achievements, and the story of how his wife and stage partner Bess, acting on an agreement she had made with Houdini before his death, 
tried to expose phony mediums by arranging seances at the hour of and day of Houdini's death, which was Halloween. For ten years she sat in on those seances, and for ten years the best-known mediums in the world were challenged to bring forth the spirit of Houdini. They were never able to, but in different spots around the world, every Halloween, people are still trying, and there's a story there, and we'll be sharing that in part two of Waiting for Houdini. That's a fascinating story. In part three, Mediums and the Mysterious Origin of the Ouija Board, I'll share a story of my first and last involvement with a seance involving a Ouija Board. The events as I relate them here later will sound like fiction to you, but they're true. I do not recommend the use of Ouija boards, and I'll explain why in that story. I will also share the history of the Ouija board, which is, as you might expect, shrouded in mystery. Houdini led an amazing life and continues to lead an amazing afterlife, at least in the minds of the many believers who are still, as our title pretends, waiting for Houdini. Houdini, who is considered by many to be the father of modern-day magic, had an amazing ability throughout his life to create something out of nothing, not in the magical sense, but in the manner of being one of those people who will find a way to succeed no matter what obstacles lay before them. His talents, and his creative ability to market his talents, rocketed him to world fame. He was without a doubt the most recognized name and talent of the early 20th century, and he is still considered the biggest magic talent to ever take the stage. Most of the show-style magic performed today is credited back to him in some way. For more than 30 years, Harry Houdini dazzled audiences with his incredible escape stunts and his superhuman endurance. He jumped off bridges wearing handcuffs and leg irons, emerged shaking off handcuffs from sealed milk cans filled with water, shrugged off straitjackets within seconds, survived being handcuffed and dunked in a box in the East River, performed airplane stunts and disappearing acts, and left tens of thousands of onlookers with their hearts in their throats wondering if this stunt would be his last. He literally seemed to be defying death, and to many he appeared to have almost mystical qualities that allowed him to live. As a bystander, you knew it was all magic, all trickery, but your heart still raced to watch the drama. And there were many close calls, closer than most people ever knew. Houdini's real name was Eric Weiss, and he was born March 24, 1874, one of seven children born to Rabbi Meyer Samuel Weitz and Sylvia Steiner in Budapest, Hungary. They arrived in the U.S. in July of 1878, and almost from the start, things didn't go well for Rabbi Weitz. They were living in Appleton, Wisconsin, on Appleton Street, which today is known as Houdini Square, which gives you an idea of just how famous Samuel's son Eric would become. But Samuel lost his job, the family moved to Milwaukee, and life got tough fast. Young Eric helped the family every way he could, from shining shoes to picking up odd jobs. In 1887, the father moved to East 79th Street in New York City, taking 13-year-old Eric with him, then scrambling for work and writing his family that as soon as he could get solid work, he would send for them, which he soon did. Eric Weiss, who would later transform himself into Harry Houdini, had a number of gifted qualities that would help him throughout life, one being that he was a quick thinker and a natural improviser and two, that he was gifted with both coordination and strength. He was also an excellent cross-country runner, which helped him build his lung capacity, something he would use to his advantage in the future. He was interested in magic, and learned the craft from Aaron Rinn, R-I-N-N, at the Pastime Athletic Club in New York, who first coached Eric on how to run, and later got him interested in magic. Rinn remained a close advisor and friend to Houdini throughout his lifetime. He, Rin, was a former one-year member of the American Society for Psychical Research and a lifelong inquirer into psychic matters. He was also a member of the Society of American Magicians. Rin was notable for describing the tricks of physical mediums. He exposed the billet reading of Bert Reese, who was a famous mentalist at the time. I had no idea what a billet reading was, so I dug into it, and here it is for your consumption. The things we learn here. Billet reading, that's spelled B-I-L-L-E-T, billet reading, or the envelope trick, is a mentalist effect in which a performer pretends to use clairvoyance to read messages on folded papers or inside of sealed envelopes. It is a widely performed standard of the mentalist craft since the middle of the 19th century. Billet is the French term for note or letter, referring to the rectangular shape of the paper. The mentalist provides paper, pencils, and envelopes to the audience, 
who are asked to write statements on the paper and then seal them in the envelopes. The envelopes are then collected and handed to the mentalist. The mentalist takes the first envelope and magically examines it, typically by holding it to their forehead. After concentrating, they announce what is written on the paper. The envelope is then opened to check that they've read it correctly. The mentalist then selects the next envelope and proceeds to mind-read the contents of the rest, one by one. Billet reading has been a popular trick for mentalists and mediums and spiritualists. It was one of the main acts that brought fame to Charles H. Foster, an American medium who popularized aversion using folded slips sometime in the 1850s or 60s. In the 1870s, Foster was joined for a time by Bert Rees, who further popularized it. Rees's work became well-known and was the subject of several explanatory full-page articles in the New York Times. Rin would offer huge amounts of money, up to $10,000, to anyone who could demonstrate a psychic event. However, as nobody ever did, the money went unclaimed. Wren was to have a huge effect on Houdini, who also, after he had gained world fame, worked to expose fraud in the field of parapsychology as it relates to mediums who claim to be able to contact deceased relatives, which we'll get into in this story. The question of what exists on the other side of the veil is one of life's greatest mysteries. Wren was there in 1910 at Columbia University when a series of seances were held in the physics laboratory with the then-famous medium Ms. Eusapia Palladino. The experiments were held for four months until it was discovered that Palladino had freed her left foot to enable a switch to perform the phenomena that allowed voices into the room, a switch which she had set up. Back to Eric Weiss. In addition to making valuable contacts at the gym, young Eric Weiss landed a job with the circus and literally learned the ropes there, becoming a trapeze artist and befriending the performers there, taking the time to learn how they performed their tricks and stunts. They taught him how to open padlocks, how to halfway swallow a key or a capsule and be able to cough it up later when needed, how to perform with flair and drama, and how to draw crowds. He soaked it all up. In 1890, he came across an autobiographical book on magic written by French magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin and was so impressed with the work of Houdin that he gave the name a slight change and decided to call himself Houdini. He changed his first name from Eric to Harry after Harry Keller, a magician whom he also admired. Harry Houdini began his magic career in 1891, but had little success. He appeared in a tent act with strongman Emile Giraud. He worked performing in dime museums and sideshows, and even doubled as the wild man at a circus. Houdini focused initially on traditional card tricks. At one point he billed himself as the king of cards. Some, but not all, professional magicians would come to regard Houdini as a competent, but not particularly skilled, sleight-of-hand artist, lacking the grace and finesse required to achieve excellence in that particular craft. He soon began experimenting with escape acts, which would become his path to fame. In 1894, while performing with his younger brother, Theodore Dash Weiss, at Coney Island, as the Brothers Houdini, Houdini met a fellow performer, Wilhelmina Beatrice Bess Rayner. She was working in the song and dance act, and she was initially courted by Dash, but when she and Houdini met, it was destined to be. Her parents were not Jewish, and opposed the marriage, and the fact that she wanted to perform on stage but it never slowed her down. She married Houdini June 22, 1894, with Bess replacing Dash in the act, and they became known as the Houdinis. For most of Houdini's performing career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. She always insisted, however, that she be announced as Harry's sister, and she was firm on that, being very superstitious about it, even for stage people, who are normally superstitious. She said that if he announced her as his wife, it would bring them bad luck. She must have been right, for their luck remained superb. She managed all their pets, collected dolls, and sewed his outfits for the performances. She was described by one newspaper writer as about 90 pounds of feminine daintiness togged out in black knickerbockers and soft white shirt with flowing lace collar which, which overhangs a jaunty little jacket that makes the wearer look like little Lord Vauntleroy. And she stands beside Houdini on stage when he performs his marvelous feats. Occasionally, the young man who defies jails and jailers refers to the diminutive assistant as my sister, but there is a gentleness and affection between the performer and his assistant which is altogether too demonstrative for the attachment of brother and sister. 
I will add that in those early days, when all they had was a handcuff act, she couldn't have guessed that their silver anniversary and dinner, held at the Alexandria Hotel in Los Angeles, would include 200 guests, which included stars and luminaries like Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, Buster Keaton, Cecil B. DeMille, Jesse Lasky, and Will Rogers. On making her entrance to that ballroom, Bess swooned, and Harry had to run for a glass of wine to brace her up. He joked that it reminded him of his old running days. After dinner, the guests danced till midnight. We'll talk a little bit more about Bess as we go forward. I checked on Dash's history after Bess took his place, and as it turned out, Dash Hardeen, as his name came to be, became a first-rate performer on his own. Dash had changed his original wife's name to Theodore Dash Hardeen. He was known for the first escape from a straitjacket in front of a live audience. It had been done previously behind the curtain. Dash also founded the Magician's Guild, and he was known not only as a gifted magician and performer, but a generous man who gave much to help others in the craft. After Houdini's death, Dash played the vaudeville circuit, doing many of his late brother's routines, up into his 60s. From 1938 to 1941, he was featured in the famous Olden and Johnson's Broadway review, Hell's a-Poppin'. And during World War II, he performed for the troops, as his brother had done in World War I. He also performed in a short film as a detective on the case of a bogus medium, and enjoyed it very much, because he, like his brother, gave fake mediums a hard time. Dash died in 1945 at the age of 69. Houdini's big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in Stahl, Minnesota. Impressed by Houdini's handcuffs act, Beck advised him to concentrate on escape acts and booked him on the Orpheum vaudeville circuit, which was the biggest in the country. Within months, Houdini was performing at the top vaudeville houses in the country. In 1900, Beck arranged for Houdini to tour Europe. After some days of unsuccessful interviews in London, Houdini's British agent Harry Day helped him to get an interview with C. Dundas Slater, who was then manager of the Alhambra Theatre in London. He was then introduced to William Melville, who, by the way, was the first chief of the British Secret Service, and gave a demonstration of escape from handcuffs at Scotland Yard. Here's how that took place, according to Houdini legend. When Houdini and his wife Bess found themselves, as they called it, shipwrecked in England without a booking, Houdini dropped in on the office of C. Dundas Slater, the manager of the Alhambra, to show him his newspaper clippings from America. Slater was unimpressed, but he added that if Houdini could prove himself by escaping from Scotland Yard handcuffs, he would book the act. On June 14th, Houdini, Slater, and one of Slater's assistants traveled to Scotland Yard, where they met with William Melville in person. Melville confidently locked Houdini's wrists around a pillar and told Houdini he'd come back for him after lunch with Slater, commenting, this is how we treat Yanks who come over and get themselves in trouble. They began to walk away, and they were only a few yards away when they heard Houdini say, Hey, if you wait a minute, I'll come with you. And by the time they turned around, Melville's Scotland Yard cuffs had clattered to the ground, and Houdini stepped forward. As you might expect, Houdini won his engagement at the Alhambra, and the rest is history. Houdini toured Europe and became a worldwide celebrity. Legend or truth? No one knows for sure but Houdini had a sixth sense for marketing his act and his talent. If he built the myth, he did it deservedly, because he proved again and again he could escape any kind of handcuffs in the worst of situations, that he was booked at the Alhambra for six months. His show was an immediate hit, and his salary rose to 300 a week, which is equivalent to $9,000 a week today. Between 1900 and 1920, he appeared in theaters all over Great Britain performing escape acts, illusions, card tricks, and outdoor stunts, becoming one of the world's highest-paid entertainers. He also toured the Netherlands, Germany, France, and Russia, and became widely known as the Handcuff King. In each city, he got huge press before his bookings by challenging the local police to restrain him with shackles and lock him in their jails. In many of these challenge escapes, he was first stripped and then searched to make sure he didn't have any type of keys or equipment on him. In Moscow, he escaped from a Siberian prison transport van, claiming that, had he been unable to free himself, he would have had to travel to Siberia, where the only key was kept. In Cologne, he sued a police officer, Warner Graff, who alleged that he made his escapes via bribery. He won the case when he opened the judge's safe. He later said the judge had forgotten to lock it. With his newfound wealth, Houdini purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria, 
He then arranged a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. Hopefully, I remembered to place a 1908 picture of Houdini proudly showing off his mother and his wife Bess at our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. The looks on all three of their faces are priceless. His mom sits upright with a serious face. Bess has sort of given his mom a sideways look, and Houdini standing behind them, smiling over both of them. We'll return to Waiting for Houdini, right after these sponsor messages. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, back to our show. In 1904, Houdini returned to the U.S. and purchased a house for $25,000 equivalent to $711,000 today. It was a brownstone at 278 West 113th Street in Harlem, New York. While on tour in Europe in 1902, Houdin visited Blois, France, with the aim of meeting the widow of Emile Houdin, the son of Jean Houdin Robert Houdin, for an interview and permission to visit Houdin's grave. He did not receive permission, but he still visited the grave. Houdin believed that he had been treated very unfairly there, and later wrote a negative account of the incident in his magazine, called The Unmasking of Robert Houdin, claiming he was treated most discourteously by Madame W. Emile Robert Houdin. In 1906, he sent a letter to the French magazine L'Eugeniste, stating, You will certainly enjoy the article on Robert Houdin I am about to publish in my magazine. Yes, my dear friend, I am about to publish in my magazine. Yes, my dear friend, I think I can finally demolish your idol, who has so long been placed on a pedestal that he did not deserve. From 1907 and throughout the 1910s, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope inside of street audiences. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuffed act behind him on January 25, 1908, and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. The possibility of failure and death thrilled his audiences. Houdini also expanded his repertoire with his Escape Challenge Act, in which he invited the public to devise contraptions to hold him. These included nailed packing crates, which were sometimes lowered into the water, as in the East River study pulled off in New York City, riveted boilers, wet sheets, mailbags, and even the belly of a whale that had washed ashore in Boston. Brewers in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and other cities challenged Houdini to escape from a barrel after they filled it with beer. Many of these challenges were arranged with local merchants in one of the first examples of mass tie-in marketing. Rather than promote the idea that he was assisted by spirits, as did the Davenport brothers and others, Houdini's advertisement showed him making his escapes via dematerializing, although Houdini himself never claimed to have supernatural powers. In fact, he went out of his way to say that there was nothing supernatural about his escapes. He was an inventor, and he used methods he invented and patented. He would continue to say that imitators who claimed to use supernatural powers were fakes. Houdini introduced the Chinese water torture cell at the Circus Bush in Berlin, Germany, on September 21, 1912. He was suspended upside down in a locked glass and steel cabinet full to the overflowing with water holding his breath for more than three minutes. He would go on performing this escape for the rest of his life. During his career, Houdini explained some of his tricks in books written for the Magic Brotherhood. In Handcuff Secrets, he revealed how many locks and handcuffs could be opened with properly applied force, others with shoestrings. Other times he carried concealed lockpicks or keys. When tied down in ropes or straitjackets, 
he gained wiggle room by enlarging his shoulders and chest, moving his arms slightly away from his body. His straitjacket escape was originally performed behind curtains, with him popping out free at the end. As previously mentioned, Houdini's brother Dash discovered that audiences were more impressed when the curtains were eliminated, so they could watch him struggle to get out. On more than one occasion, they both performed straitjacket escapes while dangling upside down from a roof of a building, side by side. For most of his career, Houdini was a headline act in vaudeville. For many years, he was also the highest paid performer in vaudeville. One of Houdini's most notable non-escape stage illusions was performed at the New York Hippodrome when he made a full-grown elephant vanish from the stage. He had purchased this trick from the magician Charles Moritz. In 1904, the London Daily Mirror newspaper challenged Houdini to escape from special handcuffs that it claimed had taken Nathaniel Hart, a locksmith from Birmingham, five years to make. Houdini accepted the challenge on March 17th of that year during a matinee performance at London's Hippodrome Theatre. It was reported that 4,000 people and more than 100 journalists turned out for the much-hyped event. The escape attempt dragged on for over an hour, during which Houdini emerged from his ghost house, a small screen used to conceal the method of his escape, several times. On one occasion, he asked if the cuffs could be removed so he could take off his coat. The Mirror newspaper representative Frank Parker refused, saying Houdini could gain an advantage if he saw how the cuffs were unlocked. Houdini promptly took out a penknife and, holding the knife in his teeth, used it to cut his coat from his body. Some 56 minutes later, Houdini's wife appeared on stage and gave him a kiss. Many thought that in her mouth was the key to unlock the special handcuffs. However, it has since been suggested that Best did not, in fact, enter the stage at all, and that this theory is unlikely due to the size of the six-inch key required. Houdini then went back behind the curtain. After an hour and ten minutes, he emerged free. As he was paraded on the shoulders of the cheering crowd, he broke down and wept. Houdini later said it was the most difficult escape of his career. After his death, his friend Martin Beck was quoted in Will Goldston's book Sensational Tales of Mystery Men as admitting that Houdini was bested that day and had appealed to his wife Bess for help. Goldston goes on to claim that Bess begged the key from the mirror representative, then slipped it to Houdini in a glass of water. It was stated in the book The Secret Life of Houdini that the key required to open the specially designed mirror handcuffs was six inches long and could not have been smuggled to Houdini in a glass of water. Goldston offered no proof of his account, and many modern biographers have found evidence, notably in the custom design of the handcuffs, that the mirror challenge may have been arranged by Houdini and that his long struggle to escape was pure showmanship. This escape was discussed in depth on the Travel Channel's Mystery at the Museum in an interview with Houdini expert, magician, and escape artist Dorothy Dietrich of Scranton's Houdini Museum. In 1908, Houdini introduced his own original act, the Milk Can Escape. In this act, Houdini was handcuffed and sealed inside an oversized milk can filled with water and made his escape behind a curtain. As a part of the effect, Houdini invited members of the audience to hold their breath along with him while he was inside the can. Advertised with dramatic posters that proclaimed, Failure means a drowning death, the escape proved to be a sensation. Houdini soon modified the escape to include the milk can being locked inside a wooden chest being chained or padlocked. Houdini performed the milk can escape as a regular part of his act for only four years, but it has remained one of the acts most associated with him. Another of his most famous publicity stunts was to escape from a nailed and roped packing crate after it had been lowered into water. As previously mentioned, he first performed that escape in New York's East River on July 7, 1912. Police forbade him from using one of the piers, so he hired a tugboat and invited the press on board. Houdini was locked in handcuffs and leg irons, then nailed into the crate which was roped and weighed down with 200 pounds of lead. The crate was then lowered into the water. He escaped in 57 seconds. The crate was pulled to the surface and found still to be intact with the manacles inside. Houdini performed this escape many times and even performed a version on stage, first at Hammerstein's Roof Garden, where a 5,500 U.S. gallon tank was specially built, and later at the New York Hippodrome. Houdini performed at least three variations on a buried-alive stunt during his career. The first was near Santa Ana, California in 1915, and it almost cost Houdini his life. He was buried, without a casket, in a pit of earth six feet deep. 
He became exhausted and panicked while trying to dig his way to the surface and called for help. When his hand finally broke the surface, he fell unconscious and had to be pulled from the grave by his assistants. Houdini wrote in his diary that the escape was very dangerous and that the weight of the earth is killing. Houdini's second variation on Buried Alive was an endurance test designed to expose mystical Egyptian performer Raman Bey, who had claimed to use supernatural powers to remain in a sealed casket for an hour. Houdini bettered Bey on August 5, 1926, by remaining in a sealed casket or coffin submerged in the swimming pool of New York's Hotel Shelton for one and a half hours. Houdini claimed he did not use any trickery or supernatural powers to accomplish this feat, just controlled breathing. He repeated the feat at the YMCA in Worcester, Massachusetts on September 28, 1926, this time remaining sealed for one hour and 11 minutes. His final Buried Alive act was an elaborate stage escape that featured in his full evening show. Houdini would escape after being strapped in a straitjacket, sealed in a casket, and then buried in a large tank filled with sand. While posters advertising the escape exist, playing off the Bay Challenge by boasting Egyptian fakirs outdone, it is unclear whether Houdini ever performed Buried Alive on stage. In 1906, as the motion picture industry began to grow, Houdini began showing films of his escapes, and soon he was getting offers to star in movies. The Grim Game was Houdini's first full-length movie, and is reputed to be his best. Because of the flammable nature of nitrate film and their low rate of survival, film historians considered the film lost. One copy did exist hidden in the collection of a private collector only known to a tiny group of magicians that saw it. Dick Brooks and Dorothy Dietrich of the Houdini Museum had seen it twice on the invitation of the collector. After many years of trying, they finally got him to agree to sell the film to Turner Classic Movies, which restored the complete 71-minute film. The film, not seen by the general public for 96 years, was shown by Turner on March 29, 2015, as a highlight of their yearly four-day festival in Hollywood. The turn of the 20th century was providing all sorts of opportunities with new inventions like movies, automobiles, and airplanes. And in 1909, Houdini purchased a French biplane and toured Australia, hoping to become the first to fly a plane in that country. He made a series of flights near Diggers Rest, Victoria, that the news hailed as the first flights in that country. Post note, a century later it was discovered that someone had beat him to the punch. But by that time, no one cared, including Houdini, except for the record keepers. And to Houdini's credit, no one hung upside down in a straitjacket from another plane. In the 1920s, Houdini turned his energies toward debunking psychics and mediums, a pursuit that inspired and was followed by latter-day stage musicians. What follows is a fascinating story of the contacts Houdini made, including a deep friendship that lasted at least for a while with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his family, and a number of efforts that Houdini made to expose frauds in the business. Houdini's training in magic allowed him to expose frauds which successfully fooled many scientists and academics. Following in the footsteps of his early mentor, Wren, Houdini became a member of the Scientific American Committee, which offered a cash prize to any medium who could successfully demonstrate supernatural abilities. None was able to do so, and no prize was ever collected. Houdini's exposure to phony mediums has inspired other magicians to follow suit, including the amazing Randy, Dorothy Dietrich, Penn and Teller, and Dick Brooks. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once wrote of Houdini, Apart from his amazing courage, he was remarkable for his cheery urbanity in everyday life. One could not wish a better companion so long as one was with him, though he might do and say the most unexpected things when one was absent. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes adventures, was a well-known believer and advocate of spiritualism, a self-proclaimed religion in which one could communicate with the dead through a spirit medium. And I don't mind telling our listeners that Doyle's works are featured now at our new show, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the Best of Arthur Conan Doyle. Even though spiritualism had been around since 1848, the movement gained steam during and after the Civil War in America and during and after World War I in America and Europe. Wars which had left many dead on the battlefields and many grieving loved ones wishing to make contact. As simple as it sounds, they just wanted to know in many cases where the body was left, and were they comfortable in heaven. Having a medium who often worked through a spirit board, known to us today as a Ouija board, the bereaved ones hoped to be able to make contact. 
We'll cover the known history of the Ouija board as well as spiritualism in part two of Waiting for Houdini. The fact that esteemed men such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sir Oliver Lodge championed the movement also gave it great credibility. But Houdini was very skeptical of spiritualism. His own interest in the subject dates back to his youth. In the 1890s, when Houdini was first setting out as a magician, the tricks of spirit mediums were the cutting-edge magic of the day, and Houdini studied their techniques in books such as Revelations of a Spirit Medium. Houdini and his wife Bess even performed spiritualistic entertainments during their struggling years. Even after Houdini achieved his great fame as the handcuffed king, he continued to study spiritualism, accumulating a vast library on the subject. While he still held out hope that there could be such a thing as a genuine medium, all he ever found was fraud. In 1920, Houdini traveled to England to fulfill engagements that had been postponed because of the war. Houdini was a fan of the Sherlock Holmes stories and had read Doyle's latest books on the subject of spiritualism, such as The New Revelation, the book I was checking out which gave me the idea to cover Houdini's story. By way of introduction, Houdini sent Doyle a copy of his own most scholarly work, The Unmasking of Robert Houdin. Doyle saw Houdini perform at the London Palladium in June of 1920, and a short time later the men struck up a friendship. The subject of spiritualism, on which each man had differing opinions, became the cement that forged their relationship. Houdini told Doyle he was a seeker of the truth and willing to believe. Doyle agreed with Houdini that there was fraud out there, but he insisted that he could send him to genuine mediums. Houdini responded that while he was in the UK, he had visited over 100 mediums, including some of those Doyle felt were genuine, but at every sitting, Houdini recognized trickery. The experience left him, quote, further than ever from a belief in the genuineness of the manifestations, end quote. But Doyle was stubbornly attached to the belief that Houdini had supernatural powers and cited as evidence a man who claimed to have felt Houdini dematerialize while doing his milk can escape. Doyle wrote, A great loss of physical energy was felt, such as is usually felt by sitters in materializing seances. Doyle famously wrote to Houdini, My dear chap, why go around the world seeking a demonstration of the occult when you're giving it all the time? In 1922, Doyle came to the United States to lecture on the subject of spiritualism. His lectures were a sensation in a jazz-aged 20s that embraced the paranormal as fashion. Doyle even attended a special dinner hosted by Houdini for members of the Society of American Magicians. Showing a propensity for trickery himself, Doyle screened special effects footage from the in-production of The Lost World, a story we recently narrated at 1001 Stories for the Road. According to Doyle, the magicians were utterly fooled and believed he had somehow captured film of real dinosaurs. Houdini tried to educate Doyle on the business of magic, explaining that the entire art was a combination of showmanship, dexterity, and hidden tricks. When Houdini playfully demonstrated a simple sleight-of-hand trick in which he appeared to remove his thumb, Doyle was thunderstruck and once again proclaimed it as evidence of Houdini's paranormal powers. Maybe keeping a total open mind toward the paranormal was part and parcel of Doyle's literary genius and his ability to create great fiction. At any rate, they were polar opposites on the subject of Houdini's magic. Here's the story of how and why their friendship ended. In June of that same year, 1922, the Doyles invited Harry and Bess to join them on a vacation in Atlantic City. I put a picture up at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. While on the beach one day, Sir Arthur informed Houdini that Lady Doyle, who had developed the power of mediumship herself, was sensing, she said, that Houdini's deceased mother wished to communicate with him. Privately, Bess warned her husband that Lady Doyle had been peppering her with questions about his relationship with his mother just the day before. Nevertheless, Houdini agreed to the seance. During the seance, held in Doyle's suite at the Ambassador Hotel, Houdini's mother appeared to return via automatic writing, a process in which Lady Doyle transcribed Cecilia Weiss's words from the beyond onto a notepad. Immediately, Houdini could see where there were problems. The pages were in English, a language his mother didn't speak. Cecilia also made the sign of the cross at the top of the first page, not something one would expect from the wife of a rabbi. The day before had also been his mother's birthday, 
something the spirit failed to mention. But Houdini politely concealed his doubts and thanked the Doyles for the seance. Very respectable actions for a man who knew his good friend's wife, and no doubt Doyle himself, was trying to trick him. After Atlantic City, Sir Arthur told the press that Houdini had been converted to the religion of spiritualism. Not a wise move. This forced Houdini's hand. Houdini countered publicly that he had not been converted, and that he was more skeptical than ever. Of course, this raised the question of whether Houdini thought the Doyles were frauds. That public exchange in the newspapers put a strain on the friendship. Feeling challenged, Houdini began touring with his own lecture that was the flip side of Doyle's popular talks. Houdini demonstrated the tricks of fraudulent mediums and denounced the very mediums that Doyle supported. Doyle felt Houdini was being too vitriolic in his attacks and too personal. Houdini felt Doyle was being too naive. The strain became too much and their friendship collapsed with the publication of Houdini's book A Magician Among the Spirits in May of 1924. In retrospect, Doyle should just have come out and admitted his wife used trickery. Before Houdini died, he and his wife agreed that if Houdini found it possible to communicate after death, he would communicate the message, Rosabelle Believe, a secret code which they agreed to use. Rosabelle was their favorite song. Bess held yearly seances on Halloween for ten years after Houdini's death. She did claim to have contact through Arthur Ford in 1929 when Ford conveyed the secret code but Best later said the incident had been faked. Ford had somehow found access to the code. The code seems to have been such that it could have been broken by Ford or his associates using existing clues. Evidence to this effect was discovered by Ford's biographer after he died in 1971. In 1936, after a last unsuccessful seance on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel, Best put out the candle that she had kept burning beside a photograph of Houdini since his death. In 1943, Best said that ten years is long enough to wait for any man. The tradition of holding a seance for Houdini continues today, held by magicians throughout the world. The official Houdini seance was organized in the 1940s by Sidney Hollis Radner, a Houdini aficionado from Holyoke, Massachusetts. Yearly Houdini seances are also conducted in Chicago at the Excalibur Nightclub by necromancer Neil Tobin on behalf of the Chicago Assembly of the Society of American Magicians and at the Houdini Museum in Scranton by magician Dorothy Dietrich, who previously held them at New York's Magic Townhouse with such magical notables as Houdini biographers Walter B. Gibson and Milbourne Christopher. Gibson was asked by Bez Houdini to carry on the original seance tradition. After doing them for many years at New York's Magic Townhouse before he died, Walter passed on the tradition of, of conducting the original seances to Dorothy Dietrich. In 1926, Harry Houdini hired H.P. Lovecraft and his friend C.M. Eddy Jr. to write an entire book about debunking religious miracles, which was to be called The Cancer of Superstition. Houdini had earlier asked Lovecraft to write an article about astrology, for which he paid $75, good money in those days for an article. The article doesn't survive today. If you find it, it's a collector's item. Lovecraft's detailed synopsis for cancer does survive, as do three chapters of the treatise written by Eddie. Houdini's death derailed the plans, as his widow did not wish to pursue the project. Harry Houdini died of peritonitis, secondary to a ruptured appendix, at 1.26 p.m. on October 31, Halloween, 1926, in room 401 at Detroit's Grace Hospital. His age? 52. In his final days, he believed that he would recover, but his last words before dying were reportedly, I'm tired of fighting. I do not want to fight anymore. Witnesses to an incident at Houdini's dressing room in the Princess Theater in Montreal speculated that Houdini's death was caused by a McGill University student, Jocelyn Gordon Whitehead, who repeatedly struck Houdini in the abdomen. The accounts of the witnesses, students named Jacques Price and Sam Smilovitz, generally corroborated one another. Price said that Whitehead asked Houdini if he believed in the miracles of the Bible and whether it was true that punches in the stomach did not hurt him. Houdini offered a casual reply that his stomach could endure a lot. Whitehead then delivered some very hammer-like blows below the belt. Houdini was reclining on a couch at the time, having broken his ankle while performing several days earlier. Price said that Houdini winced at each blow and stopped Whitehead suddenly in the midst of a punch, gesturing that he had had enough 
and adding that he had had no opportunity to prepare himself against the blows, as he did not expect Whitehead to strike him so suddenly and forcefully. Had his ankle not been broken, he would have risen from the couch into a better position to brace himself. Throughout the evening, Houdini performed in great pain. He was unable to sleep and remained in constant pain for the next two days, but did not seek medical help. When he finally saw a doctor, he was found to have a fever of 102 and acute appendicitis, and was advised to have immediate surgery. He ignored the advice and decided to go on with the show. When Houdini arrived at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan, on October 24, 1926, for what would be his last performance, he had a fever of 104. Despite the diagnosis, Houdini took the stage. He was reported to have passed out during the show, but was revived and still continued. Afterwards, he was hospitalized at Detroit's Grace Hospital. It's unclear whether the dressing room incident caused Houdini's eventual death, as the relationship between blunt trauma and appendicitis is uncertain. One theory suggests that Houdini was unaware that he was suffering from appendicitis and might have been aware had he not received blows to the abdomen. After taking statements from Price and Smilovitz, concluded that the death was due to the dressing room incident and paid double indemnity. Houdini had made a career out of surviving the impossible, which only made the circumstances of his 1926 death all the more mysterious. An obituary in the New York Times expressed shock at the sudden passing of the man who so often had seemed to thousands to be cheating the very jaws of death. A lot of people are asking today, could Houdini's meddling have gotten him killed? There's no doubt that his crusade against mediums earned him several million dollars worth of lawsuits and more than a few enemies. And just a few months before his death, he had testified in front of Congress in support of a bill to outlaw fortune-telling in Washington, D.C., in their 2006 biography, The Secret Life of Houdini, authors William Kalush and Larry Sloman contend that the magician's death may have been a carefully planned assassination by members of the spiritualist community. If one were to suspect Houdini a victim of foul play, they write, then the section of organized crime that was composed of fraudulent spirit mediums must be considered likely suspects. Kalish and Sloman argue that the spiritualists had a history of poisoning their enemies. And they note that no autopsy was ever performed to confirm that Houdini's death was actually caused by appendicitis. If someone were hell-bent on poisoning Houdini, it wouldn't have been very difficult, they conclude. Considerable debate is also focused on J. Gordon Whitehead, the McGill student who supposedly delivered the potentially fatal gut punches in Houdini's Montreal dressing room. In the 2005 book, The Man Who Killed Houdini, author Don Bell floated a theory that Whitehead may have been in league with the spiritualists, some of whom had previously threatened to kill Houdini or have him beaten up. Bell concluded that there was not enough evidence to connect Whitehead to any kind of criminal plot, but others have argued that he was an enemy agent who stalked Houdini during the magician's time in Montreal. I'm sure the theory of Occam's razor will prevail in Houdini's death, in that the simplest accepted explanation is probably the right one. But the true cause of Houdini's demise may never be known for sure. Most scholars today believe that Whitehead's punches simply caused Houdini to ignore an already existing problem. By the time Houdini finally sought treatment and he waited way too long, the theory goes, it was already too late. Houdini's funeral was held November 4, 1926 in New York with more than 2,000 mourners in attendance. He was interred in the Machpelah Cemetery in Glendale, Queens, with the crest of the Society of American Magicians inscribed on his gravesite. A statuary bust was added to the Exedra in 1927, which is a rarity, because graven images are forbidden in Jewish cemeteries. Besudini died February 11, 1943, from a heart attack while in Needles, California, aboard an eastbound train traveling from Los Angeles to New York City. She was 67 years old. And by the way, for you real Houdini fans, you may not know that Bess's wedding band bore the inscription Rosabelle, the name of the song she sang in her act when they first met. And Rosabelle was the word in the code that any honest medium would have to bring forward in order to be believed. Bess's family would not allow her to be interred with her late husband at the Macpilla Cemetery in Queens, New York, as she had been raised a Roman Catholic and he was a Jew. Bess Houdini, by the way, did appear in a film, as herself, in the 1938 film Religious Racketeers, directed by Frank O'Connor and produced by Fanshawn Royer. In that film, she expressed her belief that communication with those who have died is impossible. The film sparked controversy among spiritualists, but was praised by magicians. 
was released on DVD in 2006 by Alpha Video. Houdini left behind him a great legacy, and there's no doubt that he still remembered as the greatest magician of all time. In an article by Paragon Road, titled The Magic of Harry Houdini's Legacy, they write, In an age when public relations was difficult, there was no radio, internet, or television, Houdini built buzz one town at a time. No detail was too small. His costumes, visuals, theatrics of his show, his ability to create suspense. There is a reason Houdini's diaries are full of newspaper clippings. He understood how to build a legend, and to Houdini, the legend was just as important as the magic. When he would enter a new town, he'd hang from buildings that housed major newspapers. That way, the photographers could just pop out of a window to shoot him. He made front-page headlines again and again, as well as selling out his shows. He would also cross-promote himself with big companies by escaping from milk cans, beer barrels, or steamer trunks. His posters featured giant green monsters, menacing police, and choking robots as political statements and to stir up controversy. And Harry and Bess protected their legacy, and every Halloween night, tens of thousands of people around the world are still waiting for Houdini. Be sure to join us for next Sunday night's episode, covering the rise of spiritualism and the very shadowy history of the Ouija board. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. (laughs) 